Today we begin our series on the disappearance of Johnny Gosh. It's been 40 years since Johnny went missing while out on his paper route, and to this day, we still aren't sure what happened to him. In part one, we'll meet the Gosh family, discuss what we know about the day he went missing, the community's search for him, the police involvement, and then get introduced to some potentially shady individuals. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. If you enjoyed the past couple weeks of lighthearted episodes, stick around. Tonight, we're headed back into dark territory. This is Necronomapod. guys see that um taco bell is talking to u.s regulators about trying to get this small little franchise out in wyoming that has uh uh the trademark taco tuesday i did They're see trying that. to get that thrown out really yeah taco bell is claiming it's too generic of a term now and needs to be uh open to the public and free mm-hmm. for everyone to use this little, um, what was it? Taco, Taco John's. John's. Is that what it was? Taco John's. Yeah. 370 locations throughout Wyoming and the Midwest. And uh, since 1989, they've had oh, coined the, or owned the term Taco Tuesdays. Right. And now Taco Bell's like, no, we want that. Everyone should be able to have that. I guess I, I was reading this article. Uh, cellophane, escalator, and trampoline were all terms that had one point been owned and then became generic. So they had to give up those. Uh, those terms. Interesting. By various companies, whoever did it. The, uh, like the, the, I don't know, attorney from Taco John's is like, oh, this doesn't upset us. We're just happy people notice us for once. <laughs> yeah. All these people are going to finally hear yeah. Taco John's. Yeah. It's the best advertising they could ever have. I want to go to Taco John's and support their Taco Tuesday. Alas, I don't think they've made it this far uh, east. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully Taco Bell loses. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, it's just an appeal to the U.S., like the regulations department. So I don't know. Like to invalidate the trademark. Right? Yeah, just to kind of throw it out. And they said they've had it since 89. No one's ever challenged them on it. They're like, we just, we've had this. So There's also a bar in New Jersey that has used the term as well. They allowed it? And like, it's been allowed. Hmm. But now Taco Bell is like has a separate thing with them. Even though I don't even think they own it. I don't know how that how it works with the, with the bar in New Jersey, but here's what Taco Bell should do. They should make it Taco Tuesday. T W O. Well, that's how Taco John's started. No, and then I don't know if they own both names. Wow, but that's how it's brilliant. Thought I just created that. It was two tacos for for ninety nine. Exactly, that's what I was going to suggest for Taco Bell. Yeah, mind blown. What if they did Taco Tuesday, but it was like on a Wednesday? They were like, well, it's oh. Taco Tuesday, but it's a Wednesday, so... It's a variation. Doesn't count. Maybe it's a loophole. Hmm. I like loopholes. like Taco Bell should find something better to do with their time. Somebody in their marketing department came up with an idea for Taco Tuesdays, and now they really want that name or that yeah, phrase. Yeah. yeah, I'm on Taco John's side on this. I'm going to submit a friend of the court brief <laughs> uh, in favor of Taco John's. I think Taco Bell needs to get back to their uh, grilled stuffed burritos, and I want a fucking jumbo hot dog inside one of them. 
<laughs> they already got the chili cheese burrito. <laughs> Throw a fucking hot dog in there. Come on. <laughs> That's what they should be focusing on. Taco dog. Something like that. That does sound good. Do you guys have a fun couple weeks off? Did you guys have a fun couple weeks off? I had a good time. Yeah, I did. I was holding down the fort, making sure the studio didn't burn down. Yeah. You never know with Declan here. <laughs> Fuck, he does. I'm glad you left him four cans of ravioli. Though. I didn't want him to starve. Yeah. I think you rationed it out pretty good. <laughs> but you guys had a good vacation. Everyone's good. Yeah. Yeah. Relaxed, refreshed. Refreshed. Glad to be back. Not giving myself uh, my liver a break like I planned on tonight. Yeah, I was. I'm surprised by that. Drink nine. There's a pub on every corner in London. I drank nine days in a row. I don't blame you for that. <laughs> I haven't that. done that in a long time. You, got, I want, you want some kombucha here? Clean yourself no, out? No, I think I'm good. Appreciate the offer, though. All right. Got to get that healthy gut. Healthy gut is good. A Taco Bell hot dog would clean out that gut <laughs> as well. Just saying if we're going to just bring it all together. Well, I'm glad you guys had fun because it sounds like the next two or three weeks are going to be abysmal. It's a very interesting story, though. It's a... It's one of those ones that you can just flip back and forth on uh, what you think happened, what's real, what isn't real. I say it all the time. Those are my favorite ones when we can debate and discuss what happened, like the John Bonet one. Like, I love that stuff. Yeah. Like, this case is strange enough on its own and then takes a lot of sharp curves in yeah. and out towards, you know, later in the story. Yeah. And I don't know what, like, I know nothing about this. So all I know is what we're going to cover, what I have already read in the notes and like it starts off as like a pretty straightforward like type of abdu- abduction type story, and then you throw in like some of these people, and you're like, well, wait a minute, exactly. that seemed a little odd. This guy seemed a little odd. What the fuck are the police doing? And it gets even crazier than that. Part two is nothing but craziness. Wow. What? 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 <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Noreen Gosh is a woman that has lived a very hard life, but she refused to give up her search for her son, Johnny Gosh. We'll talk about it throughout the series, but her work has created laws and organizations that are crucial to saving kids from human trafficking. In the search for her son, Noreen has also muddied the waters with theories and rabbit holes that still have me confused in some areas as we're talking right now. Um, And I'm sure my opinion will change as I'm writing part two and going through it to a lot of the public, Noreen is seen as someone who has gone off the deep end, but she's a grieving mother that just kind of holds on to any thread that could get her to find in Johnny as anyone would. Yeah. I also think that she's being taken advantage of by some pretty shitty people who aim to further their careers in spreading conspiracy theories like prototypes of Alex Jones. Ah, okay. So they're just taking advantage of her and her desperation to find anything to bring her son back and maybe putting some thoughts and ideas in her head. Yeah. And it's, you know, we'll see later on like part two, part three, where it gets to the point where you don't know what's, like I said before, you don't know what's real and what's not anymore because there's these crazy conspiracies, but then, there are some really shady people involved that really exist and they really are weird people. So it's like, well, where do we go from here? What's real? What's not real? Noreen Gosh was born on August 17th, 1943 in Des Moines, Iowa. She got married pretty early in life and had a son and a daughter. 
well into the marriage, uh, I guess like six or seven years, Maureen's husband was diagnosed with cancer that was too far along to treat. As they were adjusting to the realities of his cancer diagnosis, a tornado ripped through Iowa and everything Noreen owned was destroyed. Thankfully, everyone survived, but two weeks after the tornado, her husband died from cancer. That is a tough stretch of two weeks. When you're in your deathbed dying of cancer and a tornado comes through. That's, yeah, what uh, do you do at that point? It's too much. Damn. After some years of rebuilding, people close to Noreen told her that it was probably time to start dating again. And her friends set her up with John Gosh. They hit it off and got married. Then fast forward to November 12, 1969, Noreen gave birth to a son, Johnny Gosh. Everyone was happy. The Goshes were that picture perfect upper middle class family. They lived in a quiet neighborhood and relatively crime free. This is like that place where people would say nothing ever bad would happen here. Johnny was a paper boy for the Des Moines Register. He started his paper route because he wanted to save up for a dirt bike. Johnny ended up buying the dirt bike and he and his half brother Joe would ride it together all the time. Noreen said that when Johnny realized that he could save enough money to buy a dirt bike, he became what she said was a little businessman and took his paper route super serious. A little go-getter. Like leave it to beaver type family. Kid has a paper route. Everybody's happy. Like picture perfect life. Not to be confused with late 90s WWE superstar Beaver Cleavage. <laughs> oh, I sent you guys that, yes, video. that video. Beaver Cleavage. It was a very incestuous <laughs> type angle where like he was Beaver Cleaver, but or Cleavage was his name because his mom, who was just like this hot model mm. manager, just had this cleavage out and they would just <laughs> hint at incest going on. Oh, <laughs> 90s wrestling's the best. He didn't even really wrestle as Beaver Cleavage. I don't think it lasted more than a couple like yeah. weeks. Yeah, they got rid of that real quick. I picture all of Iowa is safe, right? You picture Iowa, you're like, eh, there's a bunch of people living out in the cornfield. No fights safe. in that high V parking lot. <laughs> Which is, I'm sure, exactly what people think of when they think of us in Ohio. So it's, it's the same. Clearly, you haven't been the date in Ohio. <laughs> Saturday, September 4th, 1982, Noreen's daughter was visiting from college with her boyfriend and her son Joe had a rare free night, uh, so he was also home. Noreen refers to it as the Last Supper because that's the last time that they were all together. Around 9.30 p.m. that evening, Johnny said that he was going to go to bed because he had to be up early to deliver the Sunday newspaper. John Sr. usually went with Johnny to help on Sundays because the papers were heavier and there were way more to deliver. Back in the 80s, everyone got a newspaper. It didn't start fading out until like the 2000s. I can confirm that. I had my own paper route in the early 80s. and uh, I had uh, a lot of my friends had a paper route growing up. Like that papers were a big thing when we were growing up. And just kids. I had one for a minute. Yeah. I made a good chunk of change. But, you know, I'm probably like 12 years old. The same as this kid, like yeah. 12 to 14. Yeah. But yeah, the newspapers up until what? The last maybe 15, 20 years were a big thing. Yeah. Everyone read my, the paper. My parents got one every day. And then the Sunday one, the plane dealer was, you know, as thick as Huge. a fucking phone book. Suck delivering those. Heavy. I, well, I'm learning here from this article. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Johnny asked if he could do his paper route by himself that Sunday, and John Sr. said, yeah, I guess so. To which Noreen cut in and said, absolutely not. It's still dark out. The fuck you will. <laughs> yeah. what she said. It's too dark. There's uh, there's too many papers to deliver. Johnny didn't argue the point and went to bed. On September 5th, 1982, at 5.30 a.m., Joe Gosh, Johnny's brother, was getting ready for his job at the Village Inn. Before he left, he knocked on Johnny's door and asked Johnny if he was getting up for his paper route, to which Johnny replied yes. And then Joe left the house for work. 5.30 a.m. on a Sunday. Dave, do you think this is where it started for you of not being able to sleep in <laughs> and being up? It probably did. Day. Yeah, probably. He said it at a young age. <laughs> Getting up when it's still dark this, on a Sunday. It's horrible. The sucky thing about that is that it's every day. Like you can't, yeah. there's no days off. Right, because if there was a daily every paper. fucking and remember, day. remember, like way back, they had like the evening papers too. Imagine if you had to deliver those too. Like yeah. Busting your ass. They had the Cleveland Press in Ohio, which was the afternoon paper. Was it the Was it the Plain Dealer? Plain Dealer morning, was morning, and, and the Cleveland Press was the it, afternoon paper. Yeah. Wow. My grandfather worked for the Plain Dealer doing the printing presses. Oh yeah. Yeah. He worked all the time, like crazy hours. Yeah. Too. Sure, I bet. So when they used to yell "Stop the presses," he'd have to like pull the machine like a lever yeah. real hard, and be like. <laughs> That's what I think of in my head, at least. It's like a big dramatic scene. Everybody's like throwing their hats around. So. Yeah, he's all pissed off. And he's got to work an extra <laughs> 40 hours that day. Is there still a print edition of the Plain Dealer around? I think it's if you I think it's like a Wednesday, Sunday thing. At mm. least the last I had heard this could have been years ago. It was only like Wednesdays and Sundays. I wouldn't be surprised now if it's Sundays only. Yeah. But I know like if you go to like a gas station, you'll see like USA Today still and like Akron Beacon Journal, I think still has it. Yeah. I don't know about the Plain Dealer. Well, that whole thing just took a nosedive really quick. Like, like I used to get the New York Times delivered every day and read that. And there's just, I'm still I haven't a, read a paper in years. I'm still a hard copy guy of anything, though. Like, I don't like reading on my phone or a tablet. It hurts my eyes. I mean, I print the notes out every week for the show. Like, yeah. I would still do the newspaper. I used to read every day. I have the, um, the nook with like the paper screen, whatever. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But I still would rather have the physical book. I like the, having the book. The book for sure. To highlight stuff and whatever. The mm. ink on your hands fucking sucks. <laughs> the newspaper. You got to take a fucking shower after that. But yeah, books for sure. Yeah. So Joe left the house for work. And how things typically would go is Johnny would wake up John Sr. And say, got to go deliver the papers. This time he didn't. For whatever reason, Johnny was dead set on delivering the papers by himself that morning. So he left without waking up John Sr. Johnny left the house with his bright yellow delivery bag, his red wagon that had gosh written on the back, and his dachshund dog, Gretchen. Which is a wiener dog, right? Yeah. Is that a wiener dog? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're starting to see some very coincidental things here. Like on the first time ever, he's out by himself. And he's asking to do it too. Yeah. When I first, the first time me reading through this, I was like, oh, I wonder if somebody had put something in his head, like, hey, come out on your own. Yeah, right. I'm not even saying that wasn't up. Maybe it was him and his buddies and they were going to go, you know, do a doobie or something. Just when coincidences start stacking up, it makes me suspicious. In part two, we're going to talk about a very questionable individual that worked for 
the Des Moines Register. Oh. He was actually arrested for pedophilia. Really? Yes. Hmm. Um, you just dropped a bomb on us. And it's, <laughs> it's not even for real. We got to wait. <laughs> so there may be there's something to somebody kind of grooming him or egging him on yeah, to leave. Yeah. To go out by himself. Shades of Santa's going to bring me a special one-on-one visit. Yeah. One young little girl said to her friend's mom (laughs) once upon a time. So in the timeline, we're assuming that Johnny left his house at 5.45 a.m. Because at 5.50 a.m., Lawrence Headland said that Johnny cut through his backyard. Johnny frequently cut through Lawrence's backyard because it would take Johnny directly to Ashworth Road. The Des Moines Register dropped the bundles for paper boys at the corner of Ashworth and 42nd Street. Lawrence didn't actually see Johnny. Lawrence said that he just heard him pulling the wagon through his yard, looked at the clock, and thought, like, it's really early for this shit. I don't know. It's almost six. Kind of late in my paperboy <laughs> history to be getting at it for Sunday delivery. Come on. Can you imagine? You know what time those old people get up on Sunday morning? Well, that's true. I was wondering how old he really was if he's, if you know. <laughs> 6 a.m. if I hear, a, like, a, a squeaky wagon going through my back uh, backyard. I'm gonna be pretty fucking pissed. <laughs> I'm also gonna be annoyed because I have a fenced-in backyard. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> yeah, but in 2023, just get your AR-15, and shoot them out your back window. Though. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> Problem solved. I uh, also they used to drop the papers at the end of my driveway. I don't want this central location where you got to go pick them up somewhere. Yeah, so all the paper boys yeah. had to go to this corner to get their stuff. Did, you, did they drop them work. off to you? Or no, you had to go. Down to the actual, like, newspaper place. No, not me. Drop them in my driveway. Well, that's nice. Hell yeah, bitches. Did you have a wagon? Or I a did. backpack? Something, or? yeah. I think I had a wagon. You used to throw them? Like, on people's <laughs> front yard? Do they have, like, the little boxes But then? A lot of people like them in their milk chute, yeah. I know a few girls that like it in their milk chute. <laughs> 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 more, like, than, more than a few. <laughs> But like now, like in in probably your day too, like everyone had the newspaper box connected to the mailbox. Yeah. So like I remember, like my friends, they would have their parents just drive them in their car and they oh, would just hang yeah. out the window and just pop them on in. That's simple. You have to go up the driveway and drop them in the milk chute yeah. in the house. So you couldn't just have like that fun like throw it. Oh like, no! You'd, Hi, you'd be Parker. done in twenty minutes. And, yeah. Huh? Yeah. Ride your bike through and just right. throw it. Try to hit people in the head. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like in the movies. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hope that like that hot milf with like the loose robes coming out as you throw oh, it. yeah get you a 12 year old hand job <laughs> off the uh, paper that's what i'm talking about <laughs> time's not what they used to be huh dave very different world we live in. <laughs> so it was what september so probably very dark yeah at 6 5 still Minutes later, it's probably safe to say 5.55 a.m., 16-year-old Mike Seskis was on the corner of Ashworth and 42nd getting his papers and saw Johnny walking east on Ashworth toward Mike. Mike saw a two-tone blue Ford Fairmont traveling west on Ashworth, so towards Johnny. The car drove past Johnny a bit, stopped, backed up, and Mike saw Johnny speak to the driver for a minute. At that point, the car drove away, still heading west. Depending on the version that's told, 
the Ford Fairmont either drives around the block or does a U-turn. So it's driving east on Ashworth toward the paper drop. At that point, Mike Seskis and Johnny Gosh are at the corner getting their papers and 44-year-old John Rossi walked up to get his son's papers. John Rossi was leaving for vacation that day, so he was picking up the papers to help his son get the deliveries done faster so they could get out of town. The driver of the Ford Fairmount stopped, opened the door, and swung his legs out onto the street and talked to Johnny again. Johnny called over to John Rossi and asked if he would help give the man directions. According to some reports, the man was asking how to get to 86th Street, and Johnny didn't know how to get there. John Rossi went to talk to the man, and at the same time, Johnny told Mike Seskis, quote, this guy's weird, something's wrong with him, I'm scared, and I'm going home. John Rossi started talking to the man who John said was all fired up, like he was sweating, really sped up, like he was on speed or something, slurred speech. The man swung his legs back into the car, shut the door, and sped off super aggressively. It's a very strange uh, occurrence. Mm-hmm. While that was going on, Johnny got his papers and walked diagonally across the street from the corner of Ashworth and 42nd, headed south down 42nd Street. According to Mike Seskis, the driver of the blue Ford Fairmont flashed the dome light inside the car on and off three times before taking off. At that point, a tall man walked out from behind some bushes on 42nd Street on the opposite side as Johnny. The man walked across the street and then walked behind Johnny until they were out of sight and Mike couldn't see them anymore. So this is a second person. We're like off the rails now. Yeah. Everything is confusing from this point on. Now uh-huh. we're, it's all over the place. We made it 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> now it's confusing. The only thing that I can think of regarding this is that John Rossi actually didn't see the man drive away in the blue Fairmont. Like maybe John Rossi turned, finished grabbing the newspapers and didn't see this guy take off. John Rossi was a really respected guy in the community. Um, he was like the town lawyer type thing. I, I can't see him witnessing all that play out and not stop it or intervene. See in some a guy way. come out of the bushes and walk behind right. following him and not go after him? And clearly signal with the dome light. Yeah. It's really strange. But I mean, eyewitness recollection is just not great historically. You could line five people up and show them a sequence of events here and get five different answers as to what took place. And the only, it's not reliable. The only person who saw that second man was a Mike Seskis. Mm-hmm. That there was no one else. And, and how, he was like 12 too. 16. 16. But everybody else, it's all the oldest person. Well, John Rossi is 44. He's an adult. But everybody else, they're, they're kids. Is it possible it was just an old guy out walking his dog or something that came around from the bushes and was just happened to be there walking and then this person mistook again, it as being related? With the three blinks on the, the light, like it's yeah, like you said, there's weird. a lot that when you look at it and it, that's right. There's also the whole possibility that that just didn't happen. Yeah, you know, or maybe that guy was just like fumbling around with his light or something and just hit it. You know what I mean? Yeah, like he tried to close his door and something was stuck in it. So he sh- almost shut it. The dome light goes off, but he had to reopen it again, pull his coat out or whatever. Right. Shut it again. That would give you the same effect. Yeah. 
because we have two other eyewitnesses we're about to talk about kevin and mark boson were also paper boys and they said that they did not see this man they were on the opposite side of the street as johnny walking north on 42nd towards the paper drop they didn't see the second man we're not talking about the car guy they're talking talking about the second man that mike sekis saw right they said that they said hi to johnny johnny said hi back to them uh, and they did not see a man walking behind johnny kevin and mark say that they saw johnny turn on markwart street headed east which if johnny was heading back to his house that would make sense because markwart is on the way to the gosh house like if you keep going down markwart there's another road that goes up to mm-hmm. a cul-de-sac, and that's where the Goshes live. He said he was scared, so maybe he was going home to get his dad to finish, you know, to do the route because whatever the guy said to him, right? Yeah. You almost need a, a map with pins on it to show, to illustrate where all these people were, where they saw what. Which kind of hard to visualize. Which way. Yeah. I know. I tried by saying like east, north, and west and stuff. I yeah. tried to to lay it out there. I'm just more visual. It's 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 hard to. I'm going to text you guys this map. Well, we'll Declan put up a flow chart. <laughs> it's, it's got writing all over, but you can kind of see with the roads what. And not his sister's monthly flow chart either. Like a legitimate. <laughs> yeah, he might have that too. I don't even want to fucking know. <laughs> so the very top of this map where there's a lot of writing on here, the very top is Ashworth. Mm-hmm. Then that street to the right or to the left going down is 42nd and then that across the bottom is Marquardt. Okay. Go up to that cul-de-sac. That's where uh, the Goshes live. Okay. When he took that shortcut, he started here mm-hmm. and went up the back yep. to Ashworth. Yep. That guy was driving this way, stopped. Then he did a U-turn, came back. Johnny goes diagonally, walks down, and then makes the turn on to Marquardt. Okay. We'll post this map with the, with the episodes. So he can for sure follow along with us. Okay. The next witness is PJ Smith. PJ was in the same age range as all the other kids. So 12, 13, he was woken up by a car door slamming. He looked out the window and saw what he said was a silver and black Ford Fairmount speeding away toward 42nd street. The Fairmont blew the stop sign, making a left onto 42nd Street heading south. So it tore out of that back off Marquardt down out of the map. Mm-hmm. This probably puts the timeline at like 6.15 a.m. About an hour later, the Goshes started getting phone calls from their neighbors complaining that they hadn't gotten their newspaper yet. Yeah, that, that'll happen. I can confirm that. <laughs> Where's my fucking paper? <laughs> Trying to have my coffee and oatmeal and I have nothing to read. What am I supposed to do? Talk to my fucking wife? <laughs> I don't, something like that, probably. Something like that. Yeah. My Metamucil's not going to go down without the newspaper. Trying to take my morning shit. What am I supposed to do? Read the back of the fucking mouthwash bottle? Like a schlub? Hello, Mike. Uh, Mrs. Hildebrand, I haven't got my paper yet. Do you know where it's at? You want to lick my pussy when you drop it off? I'd be okay with that. Uh, I'll tip you well. I'll trim it up before you get here. Oh, my God. That's why I don't deliver papers. 
Noreen thought that Johnny must have slept in, but when she checked, he wasn't in his room and his wagon was gone. John Sr. figured he snuck out to do it on his own, so he's probably behind. So he went out to find Johnny and help him deliver the rest of the papers. So where Johnny turned onto Marquardt, off of 42nd, turned onto Marquardt, where PJ Smith's house was, uh, and he saw the Ford Fairmount drive away and blow through the stop sign, John Sr. found Johnny's red wagon sitting there filled with newspapers, the dog Gretchen was tied to it, but Johnny was gone. Right at that intersection where that car peeled through a stop sign. Right, right at that spot. Yeah, I mean, that tracks, right? I also find it odd that if this was some sort of planned abduction or planned anything, like, wouldn't they wait for him to be by himself on his own paper route, not kind of near the central depot where he's picking up papers and there's going to be a bunch of other people there? Maybe it they wasn't see him? planned just for him, but like they were going to take any boy. So they were scouting out. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Scouting out which boy are we going to get? Okay. Look at this one. He looks youngest and maybe the, the most feeble of the group. You're not going to take the 16. Yeah, maybe take so. 12 year old. It just seems odd that you would do that where there's a bunch of people around and people can see you. Not very well planned. Doesn't seem to be more of a spur of the moment kind of thing. than. Or if you wait even a couple months, it's still going to be pitch black out when they're doing these deliveries. You could do it then. Yeah. It's just not where everyone congregates. Doesn't seem like a good plan. Yeah. John Sr. went back home and told Noreen that Johnny was gone and to call the police. The phone was ringing off the hook at that point with all these people super pissed about not getting their papers. So We already covered that. <laughs> So John Sr. and another neighbor went out and delivered the papers. That way the phone line wouldn't be tied up. Can you imagine your kid's missing? You gotta go deliver papers to these old people. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, just so you can fucking just get your phone to call the police. Yeah, yeah like relax. Ugh. Noreen got a hold of the police, but they weren't much help. Noreen said that it took them 45 minutes to show up to their house. The timeline we just discussed in the it's in the police report. But it was put together by Noreen. She started calling the parents of all the other paper boys and pieced all of that together. When the police arrived, they asked Noreen if Johnny had ever ran away before, to which she said, absolutely not. He didn't run away. Based on eyewitness accounts, it sounds like he was pulled into that Ford Fairmont. Yeah. The officer took down the report and left, and that was it. Noreen didn't hear from the police for the next eight hours. Isn't that crazy? That's just got to be such a helpless feeling. Mm -hmm. Even today, the one of the retired police officers from this case said, we don't know what happened. It's just like he vanished in the thin air. It sounds like he was pulled into a car. Like we know what happened <laughs> yeah, to him. You were told the car that you should be looking for. <laughs> right. He didn't just vanish. Someone took him, whoever was driving that car. Seems very clear. Based on the eyewitness Maybe accounts of what's happened. Start where you found his wagon or where his dad did and go from there. And obviously time is of the essence in a case like that, right? Yeah. Like you can't fucking. I've heard it once said you have the first 48. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Noreen started calling friends and family, asking for help searching for Johnny. While Noreen stayed by the phone, there were groups led by John Sr., of people consisting of friends, family, neighbors. They all started searching for Johnny with no luck. 
according to Noreen, the police showed back up at 3.30 p.m., so eight hours later, and they asked for a picture of Johnny. Again, they said that Johnny probably just ran away, and they left. Noreen circled back around with the parents of the kids who saw Johnny last and John Rossi. She found out that the police did go to their houses and listen to what they had to say, but they didn't write anything down, and they told those parents and John Rossi that Johnny probably just ran away. There's a recent interview with PJ Smith's father, um, 2014, I think. Okay. And he says, the kid didn't run away. I knew him his whole life. I knew his parents. Mm -hmm. He didn't run away. Which is what he told the cops, I'm sure. Yeah. Which it seems like everybody told the cops. And they're like, oh, no, probably ran away. Just, you know, shut up about it. Don't talk to a single person. Don't talk to the press for sure. And uh, he'll come back. Case closed. Happy hour. These cops are about as useful as tits on a bull, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> Not off to a great start, at least. No. I don't know where the story's going to go. Right now, they are uh, swinging a miss. Hmm. That's this. It's infuriating if that's your kid. I, I don't even infuriating. I would want to like beat dis- the cops' ass. And meet, like, yeah, I, like, I don't even I, know how you react to that. Like I said, feel like helplessness. Like you almost feel yeah. like you're like you're drowning and you can't get your head above water. Mm-hmm. And Noreen Gosh is, you know, if you think she went crazy after this happened, whatever. She's a really strong woman because from right from the beginning, she she didn't take their shit. Yeah. She pushed back. Knowing what the outcome of all of this is, who wouldn't go crazy? Yeah. Like yeah. that that would would ruin your life maybe just as bad than if you knew what happened and maybe it was a tragic end because you just don't have that information. You don't have any type of closure. We're going to talk about the police chief getting involved and how it it gets even worse. One of the um, reporters from the Des Moines Register said that there were police officers, like instead of working on this case, there were police officers that wanted to get off it. Like they would try to get off the case because they didn't want to deal with Noreen. Unreal. Protect and serve. Am I, was I right? Literally just am I right? Say, protect and serve. <laughs> and regarding people thinking that Noreen is crazy, whether or not you believe the conspiracy theories we're going to get into with this, it starts to feel that way. If you were her, I can see where you would start to think that because it's, almost turns into the police are actively working against her with how little they, they do. Yeah. They're already squandering what little chance you have to get the kid back. Right. And eventually. So sure. I think you would start to be like, okay, so what are they hiding or why are they working against? Absolutely. Yeah. A little bit later, police chief Orville Cooney showed up at the gosh house and informed Noreen and John senior that the police wouldn't be considering Johnny a missing person until 72 hours had passed, which that was the law at the time. That's weird. That whole 72 hours thing is just bizarre. Can you imagine them saying that today? I'd fucking go crazy. Yeah, 72 yeah. hours. It's just right. a weird thing. By then, the, the case is, is gone. Like, that's it. You have no that's chance. It. That's right. At that point, you're looking for a body. To do a story on or do a show on where that 72 hour thing came from like what's the origin story of 
considered a I'm runaway until it 72 came, hours. It it's weird. probably came from a, a long stem of runaways maybe that police had. They're like, all right, we're, we're seeing these kids leave. They they regret it. They come back home. Yeah, maybe. I would. I mean, unless it was just one of those sh- like shitty laws somewhere yeah. that popped up and then it just stuck. It's just an odd thing. Police Chief Cooney told them to just relax and stay home. Don't do any more searching or talking to the news. Johnny was a runaway, and he probably would be back soon. I would have a hard time not murdering the police chief in my living room. Yeah, hey, I know you're you're concerned, but don't do anything. Don't talk to anybody. Don't look for him, and don't talk to the news. So don't do anything that you should be doing when your child's missing. And this isn't, uh, this stuff about the police chief, that isn't, Noreen saying something that could be debated or, you know, mm. might not be completely accurate. That's for real. All this stuff with the police chief did happen. He acted this way. And and also Orville, disgrace to the name Orville. One of my personal heroes, Orville Redenbacher, who makes <laughs> the greatest popcorn in the history of uh, the history of the world. At least he spells it different, right? Scratziat. <laughs> he does spell it different. Yeah. <laughs> Disgrace to the name. The following day, around a thousand people helped search for Johnny. This was all volunteer organized by Noreen and John Sr. No police involvement. And in fact, in this, uh, during the search, Chief Cooney wasn't happy with all the people that were out. Like they were like disturbing. Like he came out on his bullhorn telling people to go home. Unfucking believable. Noreen and John Sr. sat down with Police Chief Cooney and Gene Meyer, who is the head of the Department of Criminal Investigation. Both Cooney and Meyer doubled down on the 72 hours, and they said, unless you can prove that Johnny Gosh is in danger, we're not doing anything for 72 hours. Which, no words. It's like, why? The way that they made it seem, or at least Police Chief Cooney made it seem, was like, he had a stopwatch and he wasn't doing anything until it hit 72 hours. And so why? Right. To yeah. prove a point because they needed to, like see to show a, your authority see, over people. Yeah. A bloody t-shirt before they were like, Oh, okay. Now we'll do something. Not the fact that his stuff was abandoned. He was a good kid. The eyewitness accounts Never. we just read. Yeah. All lead 99.9% to him being kidnapped in that car. At yeah. the very least pursue that car. That's just pursue that car to start with. Just put on a be on the lookout yeah. to other departments or something. I, yeah, I, I don't know. Necronomapod is sponsored by BetterHelp. Take a second to think about how much time you spend on yourself in a given week. Now compare that to the time you spend on others. It's easy, isn't it? To get caught up in what everyone else needs from you. Meanwhile, you're never taking a moment to think about your own needs. Getting that late night call from a distressed friend taking care of a sick child, or helping coworkers who are slammed with work. Assisting the people around us is important. But when we all spend our, all of our time giving, it can leave us feeling stretched thin and burned out. Therapy can give you the tools to find more balance in your life so you can keep supporting others without leaving yourself behind. Therapy is all about giving your mental health the self-care it deserves. Because sometimes we don't set aside enough time to focus on improving ourselves, being too busy, focusing on improving those around us. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey to better balance in your life from wherever you are. So, if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time at no additional charge. It's time to find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Necro today and get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Necro. Johnny went missing on September 5th. Noreen did her first press conference with a local news station on September 7th, and the police didn't get involved until September 8th. September 9th was the last day for a large-scale search. People had to go back to work, that kind of stuff. This was all being done by the Goshes. They did reach out to Governor Robert Ray to inquire about the use of helicopters, uh, National Guard ones, to search for Johnny. The governor told the Goshes that unless they could prove Johnny was in danger, it would cost them $750 an hour out of their pocket to pay for the helicopters. This is fucking Twilight Zone stuff here. It really is. And that's what I'm saying. You can see why she would start to feel like. Absolutely. Why are they working against me? This is the whole reason that government and police forces exist for things like that. And they're completely derelict in, in their duties here to help find this kid. They don't work. They don't exist to enrich themselves. They don't exist to pay themselves a salary and do nothing. They exist to act in times like these. Governor's like, yeah, your taxes don't cover that. So uh, that'll be $750 an hour. <laughs> the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, why would I have to pay out of my pocket for this? Exactly. This is absurd. Also, if we're following the police rules, he, he is now officially a missing person. Is that not put him in danger. Exactly. Right. I mean, even the police now have come around. I mean, I'm not sure they're not doing jack shit, but at least now it's their standards. Like, what do you want? A, like a piece of his liver laying on the road <laughs> that they connected? Like, what are you talking about? What Define danger and how close to death does he have to be before you, uh, you, you help For us sake. This story's infuriating. So Noreen started doing as many interviews as possible. Between the Des Moines Register and some other local businesses, she put together a $20,000 reward. Then the Goshes went into the equity on their house and got 40000 to add to that. So $60,000 they were offering. Which um, is what you would assume every parent would do, of course. Yeah. Every last penny. On September 24th, the Goshes were told by Chief Cooney and Gene Meyer that the case would be moving to the cold cases that they weren't getting anywhere with it. <laughs> it was three, not even three weeks ago. Like, and they oh. haven't done anything. Wow. Everything has been Maureen going on TV and pushing and pushing and pushing. Calling the governor. Crazy. Calling the FBI. Yeah, she's done everything. Unbelievable. Noreen stepped up the pressure and she contacted a bunch of shows that were big at that time. 60 Minutes, 2020. Mike Douglas, Phil Donahue, and Nightline. And she did interviews with all of them, sharing Johnny's story and his picture. On October 11th, 1982, Noreen was invited to be on Good Morning America, which that really got the story out there. If only Mm. she had thought to call Carl Monday (laughs) as well. He was on the job back then. He'd have been young and spry and ready to fuck somebody up. He and his trench coat, they were ready to go. (laughs) <laughs> I like to think it started off like as a normal suit coat and like every year he was in the business, it got an inch longer and longer <laughs> and longer. 
It's like a sign of his experience, <laughs> his dedication to the craft. And I don't want to brag, but uh, Mike and I went to the same high school as Phil Donahue. No big deal. No big deal. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Walked the same halls as that legend, that TV legend. I believe he was in the first graduating class ever in that school. Really old. Uh, yeah. In the 50s. And what's crazy is he might have had some of the same teachers you and I had. <laughs> I'm, I'm certain he did. Because some of them were <laughs> fucking decrepit. Crip keeper teachers. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Phil Donahue grew up in my neighborhood. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Did you ever say hi to him? <laughs> hey, Phil. <laughs> I did not know. <laughs> I was uh, in the 40s. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know. Maybe in his older age, he still lived there. <laughs> Maybe he didn't go out to L.A. Is that where his show was, L.A.? I was in Dayton first. I think it was in uh, New York City. Like once it went national. Yeah, I think it was in New York. All right. So he wasn't humble and didn't come back home to the west side of Cleveland to say hi to you. Not that I recall. <laughs> <laughs> Little Dave was like, Phil Donna who? <laughs> Fuck that guy. He's still alive. Is he? Yeah. I don't know if you were asking or telling me he's still alive. I'm telling you. Okay. Good for him. <laughs> it's like late 80s, I think, I want to say. Yeah, so he'll probably run for president one day. <laughs> he's right in that median age range of uh, where you run for president. Circling back to the guy in the blue Fairmont real quick. Part of what the Goshes were doing on the TV shows um, and press conferences was they were sharing a description of that man the Goshes hired their own artist to do a composite sketch because the police refused to do it. Of course they did. You know, (laughs) they got other stuff to do like eat donuts and you know, so the, the composite sketch that's out there and that, um, we'll talk about the poster next week. That's all done by the Goshes. They paid for that to be done. So the description was that he was Hispanic five, nine, 170 pounds early to mid forties black hair that was combed back a black mustache with beard scruff around it. Like he hadn't kept up on the mustache. The car had an Iowa license plate, which John Rossi, the adult there that night, couldn't remember the plate number, just that it was an Iowa license plate. Um, and he really beat himself up throughout life, trying to remember that, that license plate number. And he went under hypnosis multiple times trying to pull it out, but never got anywhere with it. Was the, the, composite sketch done based on Rossi's description or who else gave accounts of this guy? So the kid, I, I, I believe Mike Seska said, I don't know about Kevin or Mark Bozen. I think the majority of it comes from John Rossi. Okay. That would drive me nuts. It's all I would ever think about. Yeah. Just trying to remember that license plate number. Do you guys remember on, I think it was Patreon. We did our last coast to coast or ghost to ghost art bell call in. And that one lady told the story about how she met a guy at like the food court at the mall and I'm going to butcher it somehow or another. She was trying to find out who he was and like saw him writing something down from across like the food court. Yeah. And then like in her dream remembered what he wrote down and it happened to be like his phone number. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. I do remember that. It's something real. Like I'm butchering the story. There's it's a lot more like, to it's it. something like that. But it's something like that. And, 
You almost wish like Rossi would have had an experience like that. That lady might have yeah. been full of shit. I don't know. But <laughs> you, you, this would be a time it would have been nice. Yeah. But she wasn't hypnosis, I don't think. I think she was like sleeping and dreamt it. She dreamt the number, yeah. Yeah. And then she called a guy up. Yeah. Something about one arm, too. Somebody in that story only had one arm. <laughs> I don't that know. I do not recall. Mm. I'll go back. That was your dream. Patreon. You always have that feeling that anything you've ever seen is hidden in your brain somewhere. And mm-hmm. You can always recall that, whether through hypnosis or, or whatever. Apparently not. Yeah. Yeah, he went under oh, a bunch of times. Sucks. Around this time, it kind of hit Noreen that the FBI might be able to help. She contacted the Iowa FBI office and sat down with special agents Ed Mall and David Oxler. They told her that they were aware of Johnny's disappearance, but unless she could prove that a crime happened, they couldn't get involved. They said that they had reached out to Police Chief Cooney, but he refused the FBI's help. <laughs> of course he didn't. And that, that becomes her tagline kind of in life with like the book that she put out and different things was everybody keeps saying there's no crime, but I have no son. Yeah, yeah she's exactly. Right, absolutely right. This whole prove a crime took place. The default assumption, if a 12 year old goes missing under these circumstances should be that a crime took place. It's like if Come a on. 12 year old just dies, a kid doesn't just die. So we need to figure yeah. out what happened. It wasn't here. natural causes. Right. Yeah. Go figure out what the fucking crime was. Noreen ended up getting contacted by a guy named Ken Wooden. Uh, he ran the National Coalition for Children's Justice. He had been trying to make the public aware of the threat of pedophilia. And they talk about it that back in the 80s, there was a lot of places that never heard the term pedophilia before in Des Moines, Iowa they got a lot of pushback on this and Ken Wooden and Noreen were trying to educate people. There are pedophilia there. There are pedophiles out there that will kidnap your child. Yeah. Um, and that's what, you know, Ken Wooden believed happened to Johnny gosh. And he made a really good point. He said that all you have to do is look at the scene to realize that it wasn't a runaway. If Johnny ran away, he would have taken his dog with him. He wouldn't, the dog wouldn't have been there. Some belongings from home or something. Yeah. The dog wouldn't have just been left Mm -hmm. on the side of the road. So Kedden Wooden calls and he's like, I don't really have any information to help your case, but just so you know, pedophilia exists and he might or well might be in that. Okay. Bye. And she's like, (laughs) what the fuck? Mm. She, uh, we're going to talk about the law she passed. And, and while this was going on, she started getting invited to, you know, Senate hearings, things like that, um, presenting this information saying, Oh, someone finally wanted to hear her story, but nobody that could actually help find Johnny. But yeah. Yeah. So they didn't have any priests in Des Moines in the eighties. They didn't know this kind of stuff took place. (laughs) I think they just never heard the word before. (laughs) We did not know that he was an altar boy. We're not sure if they were church affiliated. Police Chief Cooney retired on June 1st, 1983, after open heart surgery. Like, he said that he couldn't medically continue his job, and he was granted that, but... Could he ever actually do his job? (laughs) I was going to say, he couldn't do it before the open heart surgery. (laughs) Fucking clown show. (laughs) 
in reality, shit was kind of hitting the fan for Cooney. There's some just little excerpts from news articles from that time that kind of sum up what happened. You can write Orville Cooney out of the story at this point. And then we can talk about Orville Redenbacher, right? <laughs> a, a real American hero. Our fans. Orville Redenbacher. <laughs> That's right. Care for Orville. Redenbacher, not the other guy. In lengthy interviews with the Des Moines Tribune, 18 police employees, including 14 of 20 patrol officers, described the problems they had had since Cooney became chief six years ago. Ten of them agreed to the use of their names, even though they say they fear for their jobs. Well, that tells you everything you need to know right there, right? <laughs> Jesus. They say they took their complaints to Mayor George Mills and the city council, but got nowhere. Their allegations go far beyond the normal gripes of underlings against supervisors, and in many cases were supported by outside sources. They allege that Cooney has beaten WJD, a handcuffed prisoner, compromised a burglary investigation, implicating one of his sons, and threatened and harassed his own officers. They say they've smelled alcohol on his breath when he was on the street at night, checking up on them, and that they've seen beer cans in the vehicle he uses. Cooney's men describe the 49-year-old ex-Marine as a vengeful commander who ignores his own rules, encourages officers to spy on one another, and scoffs at their union contract. In a separate interview Tuesday, Mayor George Mills said that Cooney has the support of the city council. It makes you wonder what those two are up to. Yeah. Some collusion. This is a lot of uh, West Memphis 3 type stuff, too. It sure sounds like when when half of your patrol officer staff is going to speak out against you on the record, then. Yeah, right. That's that says a lot. Uh, Here's another article. No FBI agents or local policemen will comment on the case except in broad generalities, but they have said the charges of police incompetence are exaggerated or untrue. Orville Cooney, the former West Des Moines police chief who initially handled the case, was tape recorded without his knowledge by a TV crew. He said of the Goshes, quote, yeah, I think they are ignorant. I think they are downright stupid, Uh, but I'm not going to say that on tape, but you can tell them I said that, end quote. (laughs) The Gashas respond in kind. Noreen refers to him as, quote, a sawed-off stupid idiot. John Gosh says, we drive by his house every now and then to let him know we are still alive. The Gashas' primary complaint is that police initially treated Johnny's disappearance as that of a runaway, despite a number of clues pointing to an abduction. Mm. Here's one other article. Former West Des Moines Police Chief Orville Dean Cooney was charged with shoplifting at a Des Moines Target store last month. So this must have been when he was out of yeah, this was, was former former chief after his heart surgery. This was after he retired, yeah. Charged with shoplifting at a Des Moines Target store last month, court records show. Court records show that Cooney was charged February 17th with stealing two blank videotapes worth $6.99 each, <laughs> two switch plates worth $3.99 each, and two packages of screw hooks, each worth $0.79 cents from the Target store at 2309 Euclid Avenue. Holla, holla. <laughs> <laughs> He he appeared two days later before Associate District Judge Louis Ania, where he pleaded guilty and was fined $25 plus court costs for a total of $48.75. Polk County Attorney James Smith said Tuesday that the maximum penalty for fifth-degree theft is 30 days in jail and a $100 fine. 
Cooney retired from the chief's job in June 1983 following open-heart surgery that left him unable to work. He currently draws a pension from the city's pension fund, city officials say. He always got his pension. He never lost that. I'm sure it was a nice big fat pension for that big fat man with a broken heart (laughs) and a stupid brain and a bad work ethic. (laughs) Keep going, Mike. Keep going. What else you got? He probably had an ugly wife, too. And he probably had a... Limp dick. Yeah. (laughs) If his heart's not pumping blood to it, it certainly is, right? No blood, no boner. I would not share our blue chew with him. I would like the record to show. Nope. He's not getting our stash. Nope. I'd let Declan have one before I let this bum fuck you. (laughs) Declan doesn't need one. Just show him a picture of his sister. Orville died in 2003. I looked at his obituary. Yeah, this was the end of him as far as like the public was concerned or that he got arrested at Target. I saw somebody comment. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good epitaph. Got arrested at Target. (laughs) Yeah. What's he best known for? He got arrested at Target. You know how they have those online memorials, obituary stuff. You can comment on people. I saw mm-hmm. someone commented like, what a scumbag he was <laughs> on his nice. obituary page. <laughs> like, oh. And then that thing with, um, you know, him being tape recorded and didn't know that he was. That's not the only instance that he was caught <clears throat> on tape or, you know, quoted as saying something really mean about the gosh. It's like that. They're calling them stupid and things. There was an HBO documentary that was being made that he was interviewed for. Uh, and on there, he straight up said that they were stupid, that their son's a runaway. They're fucking annoying. Then you so lack terrible the human empathy being. necessary to have that job. Then yeah. there's no way you should ever be in that position. Yeah. How can you just be so cold and heartless to people like that? Hmm. Noreen, you know, worked really hard at this and, you know, spreading the dangers of, of pedophilia, um, the realities of that and really pushing for missing kids to be taken seriously, like not letting this happen again. Uh, so in 1984, she got the Johnny gosh bill signed in Iowa, which required law enforcement to immediately look into reports of missing children. You can't say they're just a runaway anymore. Imagine you need a law that tells you to do that. (laughs) Like it's not standard operating procedure. (laughs) Noreen and John Walsh testified in front of the Department of Justice, which resulted in $10 million being allocated to form the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which that is a crucial organization in this country. Who've recovered tons of kids, right? Mm -hmm. Every year. Mm -hmm. They bust up tons of human trafficking stuff. I wonder what they're allocated now, because $10 million is not a lot of money. I mean, when you're looking at... uh, endeavor that big so i wonder what it is now we'll have to look it up well i'm sure it's a lot higher well yeah. we'll have our stack guy look it up but yeah she was there sat next to uh president ronald reagan for the signing and some of this stuff like she was good for her she fought her way all the way up to you know getting some real changes made now we're gonna introduce our first mysterious character into this story and we're on full conspiracy now going forward. First one is a private investigator named Sam Soda. Is that the real name? Uh, it doesn't sound like it, but if that is your real name, <laughs> Mr. Soda in the South, they call him Sam Coke <laughs> in Ohio. He's Sam, Sam pop. pop. <laughs> That's funny. 
he's not the first private investigator to be involved. Pretty early on, Dennis Whalen from Omaha, Nebraska, reached out to the Goshes. We're going to be talking about Omaha, Nebraska a lot in the next couple of weeks. So, um, regarding a pedophilia ring, so mm. kind of keep mental notes on when we just randomly mention Omaha throughout this story. Mm. You guys ever been to Omaha? I've been through it. I've never stopped for any considerable amount of time. Is it fun? I'm trying to look up. Hold on. Yeah, I have in fact been there. I can confirm. Nice. I, forgot, I forgot where Creighton University was for a minute. <laughs> I wanted to make sure. <laughs> but yes, uh, stayed in an old house that used to be a uh, funeral home there. It was not oh, pleasant. Not stay in the basement? Pleasant. No, upstairs. Oh. No, the basement was where they in the drain was, room. The basement at that time was a party room, party <laughs> area. And it, it didn't smell great. Mm. Anyways, Omaha was okay. Yeah. Creighton was a gorgeous campus. Mm. The end. <laughs> Did you meet with uh, Warren Buffett while you were there or anything like that? Uh, no, I didn't no. have time for him. Okay. He reached out to my people, but I, <laughs> I had no time for that. Right. There was, there was cock to be laid. <laughs> <laughs> The only concrete thing that I could find about Sam Soda was um, some news articles from the Des Moines Register. There's a picture of him that we're going to talk about next week um, and yeah. his obituary. Okay. Samuel was born March 14th, 1942 in Des Moines to Joseph and Rosemary Soda. He graduated from Dowling High School. Samuel proudly served his country in the U.S. Marine Corps during the Vietnam War. After returning from his first tour in Vietnam, he moved to Buffalo, New York as a Marine recruiter. Samuel later returned to Des Moines following his second tour in Vietnam and worked as a Polk County deputy. He moved to the Kansas City area as a salesman for Robert Bosch and later opened his own auto parts store, which involved extensive traveling. In 1979, Samuel returned to Des Moines and continued his career as a salesman. In 1980, he became a private investigator and continued that career for 12 years. Samuel had his pilot's license and enjoyed flying. He also loved his motorcycles, boats, guns, and playing golf. Sam Soda did have involvement in the Johnny Gosh case. He says that the Goshes reached out to him. They say that he interjected himself and in a very big way. What we know for sure is that he was involved to some degree, and he did expose a pedophile named Frank Sikora, who was a reporter for the Des Moines Register, which we'll get into that next week. According to Noreen, she received a phone call from Sam Soda, who introduced himself as a private investigator from Des Moines. He told Noreen that he had important information to tell her, so they agreed to meet at Sam's office on June 13, 1984. Noreen says that she brought a tape recorder with her, and Sam had no issue being recorded. Sam allegedly told Noreen that on the second week of August 1984, another paper boy would be kidnapped from Des Moines. Noreen asked him why he didn't just go to the police himself, and Sam told her that they wouldn't take a private investigator seriously. According to Noreen, she went to the police the next day with the tape recorder, but they didn't want anything to do with it. Noreen says she contacted WHO, WOI, and KCCI TV stations but they didn't want anything to do with it either. According to Noreen, on July 31st, 1984, Paul Bishop from the CIA made a trip to sit down with her and John Sr. Paul Bishop came in right around the time Sam Soda did. So Noreen got a phone call 
an anonymous phone call to her house. And this guy just introduced himself as Paul Bishop from the CIA. <laughs> and he told her that Johnny had been sold into a pedophile ring. So this Paul Bishop guy from the CIA makes this trip to sit down with, with the goshes. And at this meeting, Paul allegedly told the goshes that he believed Sam Soda was the person driving the Ford Fairmont the night that Johnny disappeared. Noreen said that Paul listened to the tape recording of Sam Soda and that he was going to keep investigating. After this meeting, Noreen heard from Sam Soda almost on a daily basis. And if you believe Noreen in her account of all of this, he was really injecting himself into the case. This and if you believe her word, strange. and if you if you believe her word, not only is Sam Soda injecting himself in this case, but this Paul Bishop guy. Where did he come from? He really did, because he just called up one day and said, hey, I'm from the CIA. Your kid was sold into a pedophilia ring. I'd like to come speak with you. <laughs> <laughs> At which point, if you hear that, you're probably going to say, okay, let's talk. You're the CIA. Like, I want to know what's of going course. on. Of course. Of course you would. Did he provide any proof? Did he provide that would be the next credentials? Sure. Any sort of reasoning? According to Noreen, all the communication with Paul uh, Paul Bishop is very mysterious. Mm. Man, there's stuff I want to talk about, but I don't want to spoil next week with Sam Soda and Paul Bishop. No, save it for next week. Then. Yeah, cliffhanger alert. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> On Sunday morning, August 12th, 1984, 13-year-old Eugene Martin left his house at 5 a.m. to deliver the Des Moines Register newspaper in the West Des Moines area. He had on blue jeans, a red shirt, and a gray pullover. Eugene usually delivered the papers with his older stepbrother, but on this day he went alone. Witnesses say that they saw Eugene talking to a clean-cut man in his 30s sometime between 5 and 5.45 a.m., they saw Eugene folding papers and talking to this guy. Between 6.10 and 6.15 a.m., Eugene's bag was found on the ground outside of Des Moines with 10 folded newspapers inside. When customers called out to say that they hadn't gotten their morning newspapers, the manager went out, found the bag, and delivered the papers. At approximately 8.40 a.m., the search for Eugene started. However, he has not been seen since. And that's where we'll pick back up on part two. Yeah. On part two, we'll continue on with the Sam Soda angle. Find out who the uh, the claimed agent Paul Bishop really is or probably really is. And we'll continue on Noreen's journey to find Johnny Gosh. This is a weird story. It's only going to get weirder. Mm. And are you still thinking this is going to go three parts or are you going to wrap it up in two? Three. You still it's it's going to be three. Three? Yeah. Wow. So we're taking folks into uh, June with this one. Mm. Another summer holidays. Yeah, we have a lot more names to introduce to this story. And we'll talk about, um, you know, we'll kind of touch on the search for Eugene Martin. Talk about how him and Johnny Gosh became the first milk carton kids mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are the first pictures to be put on milk cartons nationwide there's that debate about that that kid from new york was on first but that was just in new york there's really not a whole lot to say after the on the first one i mean no there's other not. than police dropped the ball the fbi dropped the ball the mayor sticking up for uh cooney and the governor didn't do jack shit to help them out they are just a family on their own little island out there 
there was a reporter from the Des Moines Register that did an interview or talked about it. And I liked how honest she was about it. She said that when this happened, she was just starting out a young reporter. And she said every morning working, it would get frustrating after a while hearing Noreen. Like, it's like, oh, there's a call from Noreen coming and she's just going to go on about this pedophilia ring and this stuff. And she said that it, you know, it became draining and even annoying to a young reporter. But she said now that she has kids and she's older, she looks back on it. And it's like, thank you, because you started yeah. all this stuff that yeah. to Thanks help to protect kids. Sense, sure. And John Walsh was a big part in that, too, with his story and his kid. Adam. Yeah. All right. You two got anything else on this one? Final thoughts? No, I think it's just going to get even, even weirder next week. So we'll see. Yeah. Does it get more frustrating than this? Or is this the, was this the most frustrating part we're going to have? This is the most frustrating part. The rest of it is a, a tangled web, like I said in the beginning, of what's real, what's not real. And then just the how terrible the world can be sometimes. Yeah. How, how scary it can be. We get reminded of that quite often on the show. <laughs> yeah. Especially recently. That we do. There's some dark ass shit we've been covering. <clears throat> yeah. But I believe later this month on Patreon, we're going to have a lot of ghost shit, right? That seems to be the trend coming yeah, up. Yeah, some fun stuff. So uh, Hell yeah, good stuff. If you're not on Patreon, you might want to check that out if you want to split up these sad uh, and frustrating episodes on Gosh. Get on the Patreon. We got some good ghost stuff coming up. Murders it's, and hauntings on tap. And speaking of Patreon, Dave, I think you have some uh, shout outs. I do have some shout outs. Thank you to new patrons, Mariah M., Kawhi Slowpoke, Karen Flagler, Lauren, Elizabeth Davis, Murphy, Dav, Kay Kitagawa, Daniel Humphreys, Christian Torres, Ulf, John Freeb, Seth Yoder, Rachel Elizabeth, Melissa Johnson, Amanda C., Tara Toms, Carol Cheese, Daniel Martin, Thunder Twonk, Two-Legged Twat Monkey. Good alliteration. <laughs> Gotta respect that. Sarah Laniel, Jessica Burgess, Dylan Harrison, Hacksaw Haynes, Altered Concept DNB, Brittany Patzel, Mealy Carlisle, Jessica Rothwell, Alex Katu, Itziana Chavez, Every Fifth Piss Break, Mike Should Be Polywopped by Declan for Wasting Y'all's Time, <laughs> and Fuck Picklesack. That's a separate name and Fuck Picklesack? No, that is a continuation of the same oh, name. Okay. I don't, I don't think I've went P five times in an episode ever. Maybe four. Well, those Zooms, when we used to do the Zoom happy hours, that was a lot of peeing. That was a lot of peeing. Yeah. Those were like nine hour work shifts. <laughs> Katie, Reagan Fry, Carrie Clark, Hannah Ratliff, Kobe Raleigh, 1629, Buster Nut in ya. <laughs> I can't believe his parents named him that. <laughs> Junk mail. Megan Petty, Jen Robinson, Kyle Sheary, Spencat, Levi Sanders, Tyler Campos, Kat Davison, Dave Got Soft Hands. I don't know what that means. Okay. <laughs> Done my fair share of manual labor in the past, pal. I know what you're insinuating here. 
Stephen Tsar, Sabs Zitz, Rihanna Doyle, Kara Dunn, John Gay, Alejandro, Snail Trails, Mike Namapod cucked my dad and ruined my parents' marriage. <laughs> Sorry, pal. It's supposed to help. Collateral damage, right? It's supposed to bring couples together. Cooter Scootin', Lena, Sam the Garbage Can, Black and Decker Pecker Wrecker, Ellie Bean, Rodrigo Caro Montoya, Victoria Lauren, Throat Clogger 9000. <laughs> Kelsey McLean, Victoria Laura, Braden Small D. Elliot, <laughs> George, Allison Glista, Bree Jennings, Stacy B., Juliana Hatch, Keith, Nate, Brett Lamont, Addison, Commander Comstain of the Fleet of Fornication Juice, call sign Seaman Demons. <laughs> My gosh, we haven't heard from uh, that the naval. No, they've they, they just been out floating with a bunch <laughs> of seamen on the water somewhere. Like the USS Indianapolis. <laughs> Alyssa McLaughlin, Edward Howell, Mike Little, College Mike's Sloppery, Slobbery Knob, College Mike's Slobbery Knob. Wow. Dean Knighton, Nissy TC, Stefaroni, Rhonda Cumbo. Tom Bartholomew, Jonathan, Mike, Ian, and Dave's nutsacks all touching. That's, <laughs> that's a visual I did not need tonight. <laughs> Jesse, Ian's voice makes me horny. Jacob Duffy, Tristan N., Missy Jones, Jay Funk, Ollie Kesterton, Justin Osborne, Endangered Tater, College Mike's Blue Chew, I don't know if you need a Bluetooth in the college. Certainly did not. Maybe one night, but we won't get back into that. <laughs> Brittany Gunn, Serena, Kyla Link, and Beta. Thank you so much, new patrons. You guys aren't allowed to take any more time off. That was an hour and a half of just reading names because <laughs> we haven't done it in two weeks. Ian, what do you got? Four iTunes. I have one for Mrs. Butterfly, Daisy Garcia, uh, a bunch of heart emojis, Serena W., Lover of all Dave's noises. Hell yeah. Holla, holla. That's <laughs> 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 the best. I'm going to isolate that cough so it's got its own button. <laughs> so you have to wait 48 seconds to get to it with that long laugh. <laughs> Um, the next one just hit a bunch of keys at the same time. Jilly Bean 8, Danielle Moncrief, Vicious 1983, Cool Cast 96, and The Truth 124. Thank you guys for the awesome reviews. Dave, anything uh, from across the pond? No, nothing. Wow. You went across the pond and couldn't even bring back some reviews. I, I apologize. <laughs> I did my best. Hmm. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, the Talk Tick at Necronomapod, Patreon.com slash Necronomapod for all of our bonus content, uh, Necronomapod.com um, to get our stickers that are still up there, my individual stickers or three packs. Uh, I think I covered it all. All right, you guys ready for a cool down beer? 
Cheers. <laughs>